It's mid-July 1948. A particularly hot and clammy day in West London has turned into a humid night. Warehouseman Anthony Walsh is just finishing another shift at London Airport, which will soon be better known as Heathrow. Hazy grey air ripples over sweltering tarmac. The heatwave gripping the UK has seen daytime temperatures soaring as high as 35 degrees Celsius. Working in the corrugated metal hangar that is the airport's customs warehouse has been like sitting in an oven, and Anthony Walsh is ready for a pint. He says his goodbyes to the guards on his way out, hoping to feel some freshness in the air beyond the hangar door. But no, sunset has done nothing to diminish the humidity. His flannel shirt sticks to his back and sweat beads on his forehead. He waves a weary hand at the driver of an approaching cargo truck waiting for it to rattle past towards the warehouse before crossing the road himself. Stepping into the small pub, not far from the airport, Walsh is pleased to find it buzzing. He's been fairly annoyed with his lot recently, after being demoted from airport security and moved over to warehouseman. He's struggling not to feel resentful about the shift. Anyway, it's payday today, and you can almost taste that cool pint beckoning. Across the pub, Walsh recognises a chap called Big Alfie Room. He and Alfie were prisoners of war together in the German camp, Genschagen. Now, not only is Big Alfie an intimidating chap, he's also a known crook. They're not exactly friends, but they have a kinship forged in war, and they'll often share a pint together. Besides, Alfie's always got a tale to tell, and will usually stump up for at least one round for his old mate. Tonight, though, Big Alfie and his cronies are looking serious. When Walsh joins them, they're deep in conflap. But a strange look crosses Alfie's face as Walsh sits down, as though the big man has just had a brilliant idea. With pints slowly draining between them, Big Alfie Room lays out a very cunning plan that could make them all very rich. And he wants Walsh's help. You see, News has reached Alfie's gang that a sizable amount of gold bullion is due to arrive at London Airport from South America. Valued at about a quarter of a million pounds, the gold is due to be held in the customs warehouse where Walsh happens to work. Not only that, but there are other valuables in the safe which would bring the haul to about half a million pounds. Even split amongst the whole gang of thieves, which Alfie tells him will number about a dozen. That's riches they can only dream of. So Big Alfie and the men who fund his dastardly deeds have a plan to liberate that gold and other valuables. The chance meeting in the pub is a lucky turn for both Alfie and Walsh. Suddenly, in his old POW mate, Big Alfie sees a very simple way they can get into that warehouse undetected. And Alfie offers Walsh 500 pounds for his part in the plan. That's about a year and a half's wages for a warehouseman. And very tempting it is too. All Walsh has to do to earn that kind of cash is slip some sleeping pills into the coffee cups of the three guards on watch in the warehouse on the night of the raid. Then, while the guards are unconscious, he's to open the warehouse doors and let Big Alfie and his gang do their worst. Simple. The offer is almost too good to be true, and Walsh wastes no time in agreeing. After all, with the guards knocked out, there'll be no funny business. And for 500 quid, well, that seems like easy money. A couple of pints later, Walsh heads back out into the humid night. 
He jumps as a black Vauxhall speeds past, tooting its horn. Big Alfie at the wheel, laughing at the startled Walsh. He doesn't recognize the car as Alfie's, but it's a nice one. New registration, too. He must ask him when he got it. Feeling a bit peeved that Alfie didn't offer him a lift home, he waves a two-fingered salute at the retreating vehicle. As he wends his way homeward, with a walk through the hot night air sobering him up somewhat, Walsh starts to wonder whether he's just made a huge mistake. 500 pounds is a lot of money, but Walsh isn't so sure he's got the backbone to be a criminal. A robbery this big could bring an awful lot of trouble his way. But Walsh knows it's too late to back out now. Alfie's not the kind of bloke you say no to. Besides, he now knows their whole plan. He dreads to think what they'll do to him if he lets them down. Walsh can't help thinking about the consequences. Despite the heat, he's getting a cold sweat. He'll go down for it if they get caught, surely. Walsh is simply not cut out for prison. Suddenly, 500 doesn't seem enough for the risk he's taking. He should have asked for more. Walsh arrives home feeling completely torn. If he goes ahead with the plot, he risks his livelihood. But if he pulls out, knowing Big Alfie's temper, he risks his actual life. All he'd wanted was a nice cool pint. He closes the door behind him with a sigh. The robbery is going to happen anyway, whether he helps them or not. But can he bring himself to play the part they've asked? He just doesn't know. Ultimately, Walsh is right about one thing. The audacious heist will go ahead, but it won't go to plan. It will result in a brutally violent brawl between cops and robbers that will become etched into criminal folklore as the Battle of Heathrow. It will be a crowning moment for Scotland Yard's flying squad, and poor Anthony Walsh is caught bang in the middle of it. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history, This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's the 24th of July, 1948. Donald Fish, the head of security for the British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, at London Airport, is driving to the police station in Staines. Fish, now in his late 40s, is a former Scotland Yard detective who also did a stint as an intelligence officer with MI5. He practically created his current role out of thin air after pitching himself to the new aviation company as an expert in security. The airport has only been open to commercial passengers since 1946, and security is a growing business. Officially, there are no experts, but Fish is the next best thing. That said, he feels well out of his depth right now. London Airport, soon to become known as Heathrow, has been busy in the past few weeks. London is gearing up for the Olympic Games, and the prefabricated passenger terminal has been full of athletes from all over the globe. While that's causing a bit of a nightmare for his newly created security team, it's the threat to his bonded warehouse that's currently troubling fish. The building is the main repository for bullion and other valuables being flown into the country. But even calling it a bonded warehouse makes it sound more secure than it is. The airport is patrolled by a private police force rather than the regular police, and they just don't offer the same caliber of protection. Which is even more alarming now that one of Fish's warehousemen, Anthony Walsh, has given him some grim news. Early that afternoon, a very nervous Walsh came forward and told Fish how he'd been approached by a notorious criminal who was plotting to rob the warehouse. Apparently, he'd offered Walsh nearly two years' salary in exchange for granting him access to the warehouse on a day it was due to be holding a fortune in gold bullion. Given the bribe, Fish is grateful to his worker for doing the right thing and telling him about the planned heist. Which is not to say Walsh didn't accept the gang's offer. He did, and is still scheduled to play a key part in their heist. He just, thankfully, has had a change of heart and told his boss what is currently being planned. But this leaves Fish in the sticky position of knowing that his warehouse is due to be robbed, but not having the staff to defend it. Which is why he's driving to see his old mates on the force now. Fish arrives at Stain's police station pretty flustered and anxiously spills his story to his old mate, Detective Inspector Roberts, explaining everything Walsh told him. Robert listens carefully, chipping in the odd, reassuring comment. But all the while he's thinking, this is way too big for us. Having digested the whole tale, the pair of them agreed to call in the big guns. Scotland Yard's newly formed elite unit, the Flying Squad. The Flying Squad is a unit created to specialize in fighting robbery. If anyone's gonna foil a heist by a gang of this size and caliber, these are the men to do it. With the bosses at Scotland Yard having heard the details of the plan, including the names of some of the crooks behind it. The case lands on the desk of Detective Chief Inspector Bob, Mr. Memory Lee. He got the nickname thanks to his encyclopedic recollection of the names, 
faces, associates and habits of most of London's most notorious villains. It turns out that Big Alfie Room is a name well known to DCI Lee. Also known as the Ilford Kid, Big Alfie has built a formidable criminal record over his 42 years. Alfie's a hard man, the muscle of most robberies he's been involved in, but he usually runs with the same group of criminals. And it is to these men that DCI Lee now turns his attention, piecing together who else might be involved in the plot. With only days remaining before the bullion is due to land, Lee chases down every lead. He also orders undercover officers to tail Alfie's associates at every turn. But one thing is immediately clear. A job of this size has to be backed by some pretty serious money. Someone big is behind it. There are two main players controlling the London underworld at the moment. The first is Billy Hill, a brilliant criminal mastermind who plans his crimes meticulously. But Billy is currently serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure, so it's unlikely he's behind it. The other main player is a fellow called Jack Spot. He's no thief, but he isn't shy of surrounding himself with them. Born Jacob Camacho, Spot has built his reputation as a ruthless gangster by running so-called protection rackets in the East End. His business revolves around frightening money out of shopkeepers, bar owners and stallholders. Jack can use his fists to devastating effect, but is also no stranger to using a cutthroat razor to enforce his rule. He is also a big fan of the barbaric practice of striping an opponent, meaning he slices their face with a razor to remind them who's in charge. Now, while Jack is ruthless and cruel, he's not the sharpest tool in the box. DCI Lee knows the gangster simply doesn't have the intelligence to plan a crime like this, but he certainly has the money to finance it. Warehouseman Walsh happened to mention seeing Big Alfie driving away in a black Vauxhall car. He'd even been smart enough to get the registration number. That Vauxhall, Lee discovers, is registered to Jack Spot, which means he's connected to Big Alfie Room and so likely to be involved in the plot somehow. DCI Lee's best guess is that the notoriously brutal gangster is the money behind the operation, leaving the planning and execution to Big Alfie and his gang. Given the size of the planned hall and the slick operation that would be needed to pull it off, the crooks are going to have to go in strong which means Scotland Yard needs all hands on deck to stop them. Having heard as many details of the plot as Walsh was able to share, it's time for DCI Lee to come up with a counter plan every bit as robust as the criminals involved. Walsh, who has turned out to be a very competent double agent, has given DCI Lee the names of at least four gang members he knows to be involved. He's also said that there will be at least a dozen men there on the night. DCI Lee can tell that, having spilled the beans, Walsh would rather have nothing more to do with the heist at all. He's already terrified of the consequences of grassing on Big Alfie. But if Walsh doesn't toe the line and play the role they're expecting him to, the whole thing could get called off. DCI Lee wants to collar these crooks so badly, he's willing to risk keeping Walsh as the linchpin. He's just got to put the finishing touches to the rest of his plan. That plan swings into motion on the evening of the 28th of July, 1948. The bullion is due to land in Heathrow at 9pm 
and everything has to be ready to stop the crooks before they get their hands on it. At eight o'clock, a very nervous and somewhat pale-looking Anthony Walsh arrives on shift. He's anxious because he's just taken possession of a quantity of phenobarbitone tablets, the sleeping pills he's supposed to slip the guards. Far from just putting them to sleep for a while, the amount he's been given will be more than enough to kill them all. Not that he plans to deliver the drugs, but even just accepting them means that there's no going back now. With a heavy heart, Walsh pulls the door open. Here goes nothing. Walking into the warehouse, Walsh gives a subdued greeting to the three guards sitting around the table, looking relaxed. He doesn't recognize their faces, and for good reason. The real guards have been safely moved to another building, and the three men sitting here now are in fact three of Scotland Yard's finest. A handful of other undercover officers are dotted around the outside of the building, disguised as airport staff to keep an eye on things. The gang of robbers are already in position, waiting to make their move, which means that the hidden detectives are watching the hidden gang, who in turn are watching the warehouse. DCI Lee's heart is beating hard. He knows that his team's subterfuge will have to be spot on. Any false move could tip the thieves off that they're onto them, and he can't risk them calling off the heist. He needs to catch them with their hands in the safe. And so the waiting game begins. Exactly on schedule at 9pm, the plane from South America lands and the bullion is offloaded. Instead of being taken to the warehouse on site, it's secretly moved to the strong room at the BOAC depot in nearby Chiswick. Within the hour, a marked BOAC truck, pretending to hold the bullion, pulls up outside the airport warehouse. The gang, sitting in a truck on the other side of the airfield, is still watching every move. It's crunch time for DCI Lee's men. The container offloaded from the truck is empty, but you wouldn't know that from the labors of the two men handling it. Using the container as cover from the watching gang, a troop of 14 flying squad officers clamber out of the van. As the container is wheeled forward, the officers creep alongside it into the warehouse, bunched up close and careful to keep their heads down. Once inside, they spread out, covering all potential exits and hiding themselves behind boxes, bales and packing cases. In an office inside the warehouse, head of security Donald Fish sits at his desk, drumming his fingers anxiously. His telephone is connected on an open line to Scotland Yard. His instructions are to whisper the code word Nora as soon as the gang arrives. The code word for the operation, named after one of the officer's wives, will then be passed to the rest of the waiting police outside by radio. This will put them on standby. When the time comes for the arrests to be made, Fish is to say the phrase, in the bag, and they'll all rush in to support the men inside. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. 
No master but duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. deputy marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. As the warehouse doors rattle shut, the lights are dimmed, providing shadows for the detectives to hide in. Outside, other officers disguised as workers move about the airfield ever vigilant. Yet more cops are hiding in the back of another truck, just in case they're needed to contain the situation. The bullion may be safely out of reach, but the warehouse is still holding valuables worth nearly a quarter of a million pounds. More money than any of these officers, or the thieves they're hoping to apprehend, have ever handled. The stakes may be high for the gang, pulling off a heist like this, but they're even higher for Scotland Yard. DCI Lee can't let these guys get away with a single penny of it. He's thrown everything he has at this sting, and it needs to work. The hours tick by slowly now. The lads from the flying squad are just about holding their nerve in the stifling heat of the warehouse. Outside, the watching gang waits for a mobile canteen to arrive. It is from this canteen that Walsh is due to get the coffee for the guards, which is how he's going to slip the drugs to them. Eventually, just before midnight, the canteen pulls up in front of the warehouse. Walsh duly heads outside and gets the coffee, taking it back into the fake guards. Conscious he's being watched, he goes through with the whole charade. Walsh duly pours the coffee into the cups and hands them out. Needless to say, he doesn't add the pills, however. Not about to get caught napping, the three detectives empty their cups in the corner of the room. They're not going to risk the gang having drugged the coffee before it got there, as a contingency for Walsh bailing on them. Walsh knows that the gang expect the drugs to take effect within about 20 minutes, which is more than enough time for the guards to prepare their act. Setting the scene, the three officers sprawl themselves across the table, feigning unconsciousness, faces down on their arms. One of them even lays his empty cup on its side to add authenticity. Walsh looks back to check they're in place and then opens the door. Light from the warehouse spills out over the tarmac, with Walsh framed in its glow. That's the signal for the robbers to move in. The first of the robbers pulls the large truck right up to the doors of the warehouse. Dressed in a BOAC uniform, he's wielding a heavy-looking wrench, an inconspicuous but potentially fatal weapon. He strides through the open door and stops looking carefully around the warehouse's silent interior. Satisfied, he calls another gang member over, who also surveys the quiet hangar. A confirming pat on the back, and they wave the rest of the gang in. Eleven men, holding a variety of tools and makeshift weapons, now file into the warehouse. Their hands are all covered either with gloves or socks. They won't be leaving any telltale prints here. All but one of the men 
is wearing a stocking over their heads too, pushing their features into a barely recognizable grimace. The legs of the stocking swing as they walk, inflating and deflating with their nervous breaths. To the closest hidden detective, stifling a nervous smile, they look for all the world like tiny elephant trunks. It's the first time that robbers have been recorded using this disguise, which will go on to be a staple of the criminal wardrobe in the years to come. In his office, seeing the gang all inside, Donald Fish whispers the word, Nora. It's on. Big Alfie Room walks up to the unconscious guards and peers at them, making sure they're out cold. One, DS Charlie Hewitt, who is an accomplished undercover officer, is the man chosen to hold the safe keys. Big Alfie now slaps Hewitt hard across the face. Hewitt doesn't flinch, giving nothing away. Alfie, obviously satisfied that he's not awake, grabs the keys. But then, perhaps for his own personal amusement, the big thug turns and kicks Hewitt in the stomach twice for good measure. Sucking up the sharp pain to his ribs, DS Hewitt tries not to react for fear of blowing their cover. Hewitt well knows that they can only convict the gang of larceny once they actually have their hands in the safe. So he fights his instincts and somehow stays still. Alfie orders a couple of his lads to tie the three guards up and take their mouths shut. While they're being secured though, one of the officers doesn't seem unconscious enough for the robber's liking. He gets coshed on the head with an iron bar for his trouble, which does the job properly. While Big Alfie heads over the safe, stolen keys in hand, one of his mates takes out a bottle of water and sets about rinsing out the coffee cups. If this scheme works, the drugs are a technique they want to use again. They don't want the cops figuring out how they delivered them. Waiting in the stifling summer darkness, the hidden detectives finally hear the noise they've been waiting for. The distinctive click of a key turning in the heavy lock. The thieves have opened the safe, which means that they've satisfied the requirements of the larceny act. It's time to move. His booming voice echoing around the warehouse, D.I. Roberts shouts, We are police officers of the flying squad. Stay where you are. As officers charge out of their hiding places, in the safety of his office, Donald Fish gives the second code, In the bag. But before the team outside the warehouse can storm in, Big Alfie shouts back, Bring the guns out and let them have it. Kill the bastards. Suddenly, all hell breaks loose. Fortunately, the threat of guns is an empty one, but the thieves have come armed with a variety of other deadly weapons. The robber cleaning out the coffee cups smashes the end off his glass water bottle and stabs the broken neck straight into the thigh of the officer rushing at him, grinding the jagged shards into his muscle. With a murderous scream, the officer with the water bottle in his thigh cracks his attacker over the head with his truncheon, and the two men collapse to the floor, blood pooling around them. The detective is seriously injured, but still conscious. His attacker is out cold. Meanwhile, DCI Lee heroically charges headlong at Big Alfie in front of the safe. But Alfie's no stranger to violence and doesn't hesitate to turn his metal pipe on the policeman. Lee's scalp splits under the blow and he hits the deck. He's alive, but out of the fight. Meanwhile, the two officers pretending to be guards are now very much awake but still tied up. They manage to free themselves, and D.S. Hewitt, seeing his boss knocked down and bleeding, flies at Big Alfie. The iron bar goes clattering to the ground, and Hewitt, who despite his small frame is no shrinking violet, 
lays into Alfie, his fists and boots flying, inflicting serious injuries. Meanwhile, one of Alfie's mates sees him getting battered by the wiry cop and in turn leaps to his defense, jumping on Hewitt's shoulders and attacking him from behind. Hewitt's partner then steps in to protect his own colleague. The second officer pulls the thief off Hewitt's back, but the man swings his elbow back hard, eliciting a sickening crunch as his nose breaks. The pain sends the copper into a blind rage, and he punches the crook in the side of the head, laying him out with a single, solid blow. Another one hits the ground with a dull thud. The bodies are piling up in this ragged, royal rumble of a brawl. And so it goes on, blow for blow, both sides of the law pitted in a ferocious and physical battle, with neither willing to give up. DCI Lee put his toughest, bravest men inside the warehouse to spring the trap, but he could really do with that backup from outside right now. As the fight spills out of the warehouse, the backup team rushes for the doors, coming to their colleagues' rescue. The remaining fighters in the gang are quickly overpowered, and the police don't pull their punches. Within moments, it's all over. Eight of the gang lie unconscious on the tarmac, and the officers allow themselves the smallest of breathers, spitting blood, and in some cases, teeth. But not all of the gang are rounded up. One felon, having taken a blow around the head, stumbles out into the darkness. Groggily making his way off the airfield, he stumbles and falls into a ditch, where he promptly passes out. The officers rounding up the stragglers miss him altogether. By the time he comes round, the whole sting operation is over and the cops are long gone. He dusts himself off and scarpers. Another of the villains slips out of a side door and manages to escape the airport perimeter by clinging onto the bottom of a truck. His plan is to drop off at the first traffic lights, but he doesn't get the chance to fall away cleanly without getting run over. So he's forced to cling onto the truck, burning his chest on the exhaust until the vehicle reaches its nearby destination. Unfortunately, that destination is the yard at Harlington Police Station. So the unlucky thief finds himself lying on the ground under the police truck until the yard is silent before he can make a run for it, nursing burns which will scar him for life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Back at the airport, a battered and bruised team of flying squad officers unceremoniously load the remaining thieves into the back of the police van, manacled and equally bloodied. 
Both sides are going to need a lot of patching up before they face a custody hearing. The next morning, after some much-needed sleep, food and hospital treatment, the officers from the flying squad accompany the gang of thieves to Uxbridge Magistrates Court. All except Big Alfie, that is. He's been so badly beaten by D.S. Hewitt that the hospital have kept him in for observation. The surprised magistrate enters the court to find an array of broken, blood-stained and bandaged men standing before the bench. Struggling to differentiate between the robbers and their captors, he listens with growing incredulity to the evidence provided for their arrest. Did this gang really try to steal half a million pounds worth of gold and valuables from London Airport, with little more than stockings for disguises and household tools for weapons? He can scarcely believe his ears, the audacity of it. Yet these poor wounded officers are testament to exactly that. The magistrate makes short work of remanding the gang into custody. With most of the villains now detained and awaiting trial, DCI Lee, his head still bandaged from the fight, goes to talk to the notorious gangster Jack Spot, the man he suspects funded the whole job. Of course, Jack denies everything. He claims that he simply lent his black Vauxhall to a mate. How could he possibly know what they did with it? Besides, when Big Alfie was seen driving Jack's car, he wasn't technically doing anything illegal, was he? Well, as far as DCI Lee is concerned, planning a robbery is as bad as doing one. But Jack's right, they've not got anything concrete to pin on him. In the end, DCI Lee can't even get a warrant for his arrest, although this event will mark the beginning of the end for Jack Spot's criminal career. After getting away with his part in the Battle of Heathrow, his every move will fall under increased scrutiny from the boys at the yard. So much so that his gambling empire will be forced to close. That, coupled with a brutal razor attack on him by a rival gangster, will soon mark the end of his reign. But that's another story. On the 17th of September 1948, the gang appear at the Old Bailey for trial. Previously, at their initial hearing, they had all pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of conspiracy to rob, rather than confessing to the more serious crime of armed robbery. This was understandable, given that they'd all been caught in the act and that the lesser charge carries a maximum sentence of only two years imprisonment. But now, in front of the Old Bailey judge, in an ill-advised turnaround, they now admit robbing D.S. Hewitt of four keys while they were armed, which means, technically, they've just pleaded guilty to armed robbery, a far more serious charge. Of course, they still insist they planned no violence, but it's too late. After listening to their rather unconvincing list of mitigations, the judge refutes their claims. He says, All of you men set your minds and hands to this enterprise. You went there with a van to carry the goods, and you went armed. He goes on to point out that if the drugs had been effective, there would have been no violence, but the men went armed and ready to inflict it anyway. It doesn't matter, in the end, whether they stole four keys or half a million pounds worth of valuables. The intent to rob while carrying weapons is clear. Violent, armed robbery is the only verdict he can arrive at. He concludes by saying, A raid on this scale profoundly shocks society. You went prepared for violence and you got it. You got the worst of it and you can hardly complain about that. The sentence each man receives is the maximum applicable, up to 12 years penal servitude. 
shocked cries rise from the public gallery. Some women, presumably wives and girlfriends of the robbers, collapse in surprise, and some become hysterical at the severity of their punishment. But the judge remains firm. On hearing his sentence, big Alfie Room falls to his knees, breaking down and sobbing piteously, leaving his reputation as a hard man in tatters. The sneers he gets off his fellow, embittered gang members is a sign of things to come. Alfie would become ostracized from that point on, in prison and on the outside. As for Walsh, the warehouseman and whistleblower, he's dealt with at a separate hearing. Despite his instrumental role in police foiling the heist, he is still technically guilty of the charge of conspiracy to rob. But the judge acknowledges his bravery in turning to his bosses and he is bound over to two years' good behaviour. All he has to do now is keep his nose clean. Though the Battle of Heathrow left a number of the officers of the flying squad with permanent injuries, it was a time of celebration and vindication for the team. Their courage in the line of duty was unquestionable, and the fact that they rounded up a good handful of London's top villains was well received by their bosses and the public alike. One of the squad even composed a funny but lengthy ditty about their exploits, which ends, "'Twas a marvellous fight while it lasted, the hopes of the geezers truly blasted. The villains are grabbed and marched away, and so to the end of a perfect day." And a perfect day it certainly was in the folklore of Scotland Yard. All of the officers involved were presented with commissioner's commendations. Catching cunning thieves like these was exactly the reason the flying squad had been created, and they certainly proved themselves worthy that night. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's February 1947, the snowiest winter of the 20th century. Trains are disrupted, the army has to clear deep drifts from the roads, and it's been reported that the sea off Margate has frozen. But the cold won't stop a gang of six criminals from planning an audacious bank job. They're gonna rob the Midland Bank in Kentish Town by abducting the manager on his way home from work and taking his keys. But what they don't know is that Scotland Yard is already onto them. An elite unit of detectives, the Ghost Squad, under the watchful eye of Detective Inspector Len Crawford, have eyes and ears all over the capital. But when one of the detectives volunteers to disguise himself as the bank manager, will the high-risk, high-reward tactics of the Ghost Squad prove fatal to one of their own? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Guaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sean Coleman. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory Macaulay.
I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.